You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Good morning, church. All right, I told the, the first service, I'm a black preacher from Mississippi, so y'all got to talk to me. Um, so us again. Good morning, church. Good morning. There we go. I love it. Uh, my name's Lo. Uh, I've known your pastor since, I think it's 2014, since we first met at, at a conference, and um, her name is saved on my phone as Auntie Carolyn. Uh, if you know her, it's for obvious reasons. Like, she's amazing, and I'll say to somebody outside, like, if you can get past her getting all up in your business, she's great. She's really awesome. <laughs> she's, she's pretty fantastic. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've known this lady and have believed in this lady, been thankful for this lady, uh, and just always guessed at what her church would look like. Didn't think this. Um, <laughs> couldn't have guessed it, but not disappointed. It, it makes sense. Um, if you guys are as she is, and I've had a chance to hang out with your kids for this weekend, I'm assuming y'all are. Um, I think we're family already, so I'm, I'm thankful to be able to worship with you guys and share God's word with y'all. Uh, I come here hanging out. Uh, talking about the story of God. We've been talking about how our stories matter to Jesus uh, and how the story of Jesus should matter to us. And when those things touch, uh, it makes holy ground. It makes really, really cool things happen. And so we're going to kind of land the plane here this morning and catch you guys up to speed with like, like my story and all that good stuff. Uh, the best part of my story is my family. So this is the picture of them. Um, that's me. There he is. Um, chocolate dude with the white teeth. That's me. Um, I'm holding the most beautiful little girl ever made in the history of the world. That's my daughter, Emerson. Y'all say, hey, Emerson. She can't hear you. That's her. Um, Standing next to me is my beautiful chocolate wife. That's Erica. And then she's holding our newest addition. That's Maverick. Maverick is nine months old today and is probably the fattest little dude you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) He is a thicky. That boy is really chunky. Um, Mav is a bit of a surprise slash miracle baby. I'll tell a little bit about that in a sec, but um, he came here in December, and we're super thankful for how he's like bookended our family. I say he's bookended it. My wife disagrees, but I'm saving myself for the Lord. We're going to keep <laughs> keep rocking as we are. Um, Mav came here in a really interesting way. Uh, it's kind of not dramatic, but it was, it was very uh, exciting. Um, so it, December 12th was our anniversary. We celebrated five years. December 13th, we came home from a little vacation where it was just uh, my wife and I. We put Amy to bed. We're meal prepping. And she's like great with child. Big, huge chocolate belly. It was a good time. Um, Mav's not supposed to come for several weeks. So we're just meal prepping, hanging out with each other. And my wife looks at me and she says, I'm feeling something. I thought she was being romantic. I'm like, I'm feeling you too, girl. I like you. <laughs> Cutie. Kiss you right now. Um, she's like, no, dummy. I, I, think my, I think my water's breaking. Now, I should tell you, my daughter is adopted, so we'd never gone through the whole birthing thing. Um, pretty sure, at least in all the movies, it should be no thinking about water breaking. In all the movies, it's like a dam breaks and the water's just gushing everywhere, and I'm expecting our furniture to be floating, like it should be that much water. That's what I'm thinking should happen. She's like, yeah, it's not really what's going on. I have this like slow trickle thing happening. I don't know what's going on. And she was like, do you think we should go to the hospital? And I was like, I don't know. Do you think we should go to the hospital? She was like, I don't know. So she, she hops in the shower. I hop on WebMD, and I look up all the things that could go wrong if you don't get this girl to the hospital instantly. 
So when she gets out of the shower, I barely give her time to get dry. We go straight to the hospital, and I have been ready for this moment. I am on 10 instantly. I'm excited. I'm revved up. My expectation is up here. And the reality is somewhere down here. It's not really matching the vibe of the moment. I'm expecting water flowing all over the house. We get a slow trickle. It's not really matching the vibe. I'm expecting her to be writhing in pain, like losing her head, screaming at the top of her lungs, and she's playing Candy Crush the whole way to the hospital. She's not, matching, she's not matching my energy at all. We get to the hospital. I envision myself kicking in the door, bringing her in, saying, my wife is great with child. We need a, a nurse, stat, because you can't say stat in real life in any other context. So I'm ready for this moment to happen. And they see us, and they're like, you can sit down and have a moment. We wait for an hour and a half before they come to us. Eventually, they come. And they're like, yeah, she's only like four centimeters dilated. You guys have time. Baby won't be here anytime soon. I'm like, this is not going the way I envisioned. It's supposed to be happening right now. I envision the drive, I'm going to speed all the way to the hospital. And I did. I went about 145, zooming, trying to get there because I had envisioned what was supposed to happen. I'm getting there. The police are supposed to pull me over. They're going to ask me, what's wrong with you? Why are you driving so fast? I'm going to say, she's great with child. They're going to say, oh, snap, throw the sirens on, give us a police escort. That's what happens in the movies. Reality is, I can't find a cop in sight. <laughs> I'm driving past the police station. I'm doing donuts. I am... I'm trying to call the cops on myself. I'm trying to get pulled over. I can't find anybody. Nothing is matching my expectation. The reality is a little, a little bit of a buzzkill. That's December 13th, December 14th, at 4.58 p.m., a son maverick is born, and he is this beautiful, sweet, gooey, meat potato human that comes into the world. You guys are cute now, children, but at first it's, it's weird. Um, he comes into the world. And I share with the students, like, my wife in 2017 was diagnosed with uterine cancer. We weren't sure what life was going to look like for us. We were told very vehemently that we would not be having kids. We adopted our daughter. We thought our family was complete and full. And then God gives us this gift. And you hold this gift of life in your hands. And all the unmet expectations just solely just fizzle out of your, of your mind. Even if the, the reality doesn't match the expectation, when you hold the gift of life in your hands, at least I in that moment learned that God is faithful to give good and perfect gifts. God is faithful to bring life in moments and in places where people think life is not going to come. God is faithful to bring beauty and hope and restoration, even if it doesn't match our expectations. Maverick is born at the end of 2020. I'd imagine in that year, you probably had some unmet expectations. If you predicted this year, you're selfish for not telling us it was coming. <laughs> it's a crazy year. So many of our expectations went unmet. So many of our realities were marked by pain and difficulty and not our preference and discomfort. It's a possibility that you did not have all your expectation met in the season. But what we're learning is that God is faithful to move in our stories, even in the unpredictability. That what God does is he brings his story over the craziness of our own story. And where things don't always line up like we want them to, he's still able to bring gift and life. We drive home take Maverick back to the crib, and I will admit to you I drove a little different going home than I drove going there. Um, a little safer. If you ever ever held a new baby in your hand, you know that they don't really have a lot of like neck muscles, and they're just like wobbling the bobblehead situation. So like, I was nervous putting him in the car seat, and I was, I was nervous about taking care of a little dude, and so we're driving home, and I'm driving like two miles per hour the entire way home. And it's not that I didn't notice the stop signs before, not that I didn't notice the speed limit before, I didn't notice the red lights before. They weren't brighter, they weren't larger. It's just that when you care about something, when you have love in the car, it compels different than the law can. Not, not knowing the law, very aware of the law, but the law could not compel me to behave like love could. 
Sometimes I say yes to things because of love that I would not say yes to because of the law. Sometimes I say no to things that I want to do, but love compels me otherwise. Love has an ability. It's wired in us in a certain kind of way that love will, will make you lead. To, it will lead to obedience. Obedience doesn't always lead to love. Love will compel action. Action may not always stir up love. And God knows this about us. So you think about how God has wired the world and the gift of Scripture and the gift of the gospel. The story of God is that God knows love is how you're bent. Love is how you're shaped. And so God gives us the law, but he makes it very clear. The law should not compel the narrative forward. It's my love that does. The law is a guardrail, but it's my love that pushes the story forward. I give you miracles, and I give you prophecy, and I give you sermons, and I give you wisdom, and I give you all these things, and they're good things, but miracles don't push the story forward. Prophecy doesn't push the story forward. It's the love of God that pushes the story forward. Jesus does not come because he's so impressed by us. He doesn't come because he's so angry with us. We all know John 3.16. It's like our slogan. It's our version of McDonald's, ba da ba 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 Like, that's our thing. We know that one. But we don't always live it out. Sometimes we live it out like God was so angry with the world, he gave his only son. Or God was so frustrated with the world, but he gave his only son. Or God was so annoyed with the world, he gave his only son. That's not the motive. What pushes the story forward, what makes him send life and send blessing and send the word of God, is his love for you. He loves you deeply. He's not annoyed with you. He's not frustrated with you. He doesn't wait until you can get your act together. He, he is so in love with you that he sends his son. This is a story that God gives us, the story that compels him, and he invites us to be compelled by the same story. And, and sometimes we are. And other times we're compelled by something a little less impressive than love. Sometimes we're compelled with an agenda that is not the agenda of heaven. If you, if you keep up with, like, Christian circles and especially a lot of Christian thinkers these days, they'll, they'll tell you that we live in what's called a post-Christian culture, which means that we've kind of moved beyond the story of the gospel. Not the same thing as a pre-Christian culture. A pre-Christian culture does not know the story. A post-Christian culture has hostility towards the story. If you stand upon the things of God, you're not always received in love. If you stand upon the things of God, you can be labeled as a bigot or hateful. And sometimes it's because the world doesn't like the things of God, but every time it's because we have not worn the gospel well. We've done some harm in some places that we have to be honest about. There's a guy named Maslow. Uh, if you study general psychology, Maslow's the guy that did the hierarchy of need. Basically, in 1943, he makes this essay. He makes a statement that human beings are innately self-seeking, that we're just kind of selfish. Three stages of the hierarchy, he says, we have our basic needs. If you have your basic needs like water and food and shelter, you have to have those met before you can think about your, your psychological needs. And until you have those needs met, psychological needs as far as like self-esteem and self-worth and validation, it's not until those are met that you can start thinking about other people, think about life beyond yourself, loving your neighbor and such. Now, what he is saying is coincidentally at odds with the way of Jesus. Jesus says, love drives the story forward. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul expounds upon this and says, you should consider other people more than you consider yourself. But the kingdom is the exact opposite of what Maslow suggests. And it would seem like it's coincidence that the world, that, that, that science, that general psych disagrees with the kingdom of God. But if you learn a little bit more about Maslow's life, you learn he's not ignorant to the teachings of Jesus. He knows them very well. He just has a bad taste in his mouth when it comes to the gospel. He's been given the same story as you and I, but with a different narrative. Same story, largely different narrative. He, he grew up with a mom who was an Orthodox Jew, and she used scripture and weaponized it against him. She was verbally and emotionally abusive to him. 
And so he has a really bad taste in his mouth when it comes to faith. He's, he's influenced away from the story of God. So when, when he gains influence, when he starts to influence people, it makes sense that he influences people away as well. And if you think I'm reaching at straws, think I'm making this up, I'm going to read you a quote from the essay he wrote in 1943. It's what Maslow says. In the essay, he says, It is quite true that man lives by bread alone. That sounds familiar it's because Maslow, in general psychology, is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Very aware of Scripture. Knows it well. But he believes, because of how he's seen it lived out, that surely human beings are selfish. Surely we're the opposite of how God says we're wired. We have to own, friends, that sometimes our world is hostile to the story because we have not lived the story well. We have not been motivated and compelled by God's love the way that we, we ought to be. Love will compel different than the law will. Grace and mercy compels different than forced obedience and commandment. I'm not mad at, at the law, but I'm aware that the law being the motivation doesn't always lead to the kingdom. You guys know the story of Paul. Paul is very compelled by the law of God, and it led him to persecuting Christians. Paul's a guy that's really upset with this whole new movement of Jesus, but then he meets Jesus. The reality of his story starts to rub up against the reality of Jesus' story, and it changes everything about his life. He encounters the love of God, and it melts his heart, changes everything about him. He starts to interact with the people of God very differently, does community with them as opposed to persecuting them. And he wants to take this gospel all over the place. And so at his time, it's a very popular city, it's in Corinth. He goes there, he knows it's a port city, he knows there's a lot of foot traffic. He spends about a year and a half there. And in a year and a half, he's, he's building a community surrounded by God's love. And things are going great. He's killing it. And ministry's awesome. And Corinth is a place where a lot of weird people go, so his church probably looked a lot like this church. And they're all hanging out and doing life together. It's a good time. And then he leaves. I want you guys to imagine, what would y'all do if Karen Lamore just, like, dipped? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's how his people probably felt, because he leaves. And after a year and a half of growing this vibrant ministry and growing this vibrant church, he hears word about how they're doing, and it's not so great. He hears that they're struggling that they're divided over silly issues. He writes in this letter in 1 Corinthians, he writes about why, or being really mind-blown at the silly things they're divided over. You guys are divided over, like, who you got baptized by, Apollos or Peter or Paul. He's like, remind you guys of the story. None of us died on the cross for you. Why would you give your allegiance to us as opposed to Jesus? You have to remind them the story. They want to do silly things with the gospel, like give them license to sin. And he reminds them, that sin you're dealing with is what God Christ killed. Reminds them the sacrifice of Jesus was not so that you can have a license to sin. The story is inviting you to a new way of living, a new way of doing life. He's reminding them of the story. And he hears that they're divided over their spiritual gifts, and he's like, y'all ain't that great anyway. Like, ultimately, your gift is Jesus. You guys are a part of his body. You're just a hand. You're just a foot. He actually ends that chapter, chapter 12, and he tells them, I know you guys are divided over silly things, and I know you guys want the best gifts, but, but I'm going to show you a better way. Get to the 1 Corinthians 13. Now, now, as you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's a love chapter. He's telling them this is what should compel the story. This is what should push the narrative forward for you guys. And I think this is a good word for us. Not because we're divided over silly things, like vaccines and masks and political stuff. That's not us. <laughs> but we could use a reminder of what should compel the story forward. So he starts here, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love. I'm only a resounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. 
if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul says, if I was gifted, if I knew a bunch of stuff, if I had faith, if I worked miracles, but I did not love, at best, I'm just noisy. I'm not giving the sweetness of sound, just a bunch of volume, just a bunch of noise. Paul's saying if you are compelled by the love of God, it will lead to obedience and beauty. If you're not compelled by God's love, you're really just a distraction. You're in the way. If, if you're not compelled by God's love, all this busyness of doing church, it's an extreme waste of time if it's not rooted in God's love. We're talking about gathering together and worshiping, and singing, and having a potluck. And I love potlucks. Praise God for potlucks. But if it ain't rooted in God's love, it's a bad diet. If, if, if it's not rooted in the love of God, it's a waste of time. Hey, you guys ever went to the grocery, uh, grocery store, and you're pushing one of those carts, and it has like a like, squeaky, wobbly wheel, and it's like really, really annoying? It's not functioning like it's supposed to. It's, just, it's in the way. You're supposed to be serving, and you're not serving me. It's off. That's what it's like to, to, to do life in the kingdom without the love of God. It's like going to a theme park and you're waiting in a line and you don't get on a ride. It's just a, a theme park of, of long lines. In Texas language, it's like a Tex-Mex restaurant but it doesn't have guacamole. It's in the way. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's false advertisement. Paul's telling them very clearly, if you're not compelled by God's love, don't show up. If it's not God's love, it's putting you here. If you're here to judge people, if you're here to point the finger, to check a box, I'd rather you not. And he's not saying he doesn't want people. He's not saying, hey, change your behavior. He said, keep the same behavior. Just change your motivation. Change what drives your story forward. It's what your heart is bent because of love for God, for yourself, and for his people. If it's not motivated by God's love, it's in the way. He goes on, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. He says, love is like this. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It's probably not in your Facebook comment sections. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Somebody say always. always. It always trusts. Say always. Always, always hopes. Say always. always. Always perseveres. Say always. always. Love is consistent, never changing. It always hopes for you. It always thinks well for you. When God sees your life, he's not thinking about how bad it could go. It always hopes, always perseveres. You're not going to change the story of God. He's going to change yours. He's consistent. Now, I'm a sometimes kind of guy. I love sometimes. I persevere sometimes. I hope sometimes. I hope when things are like circumstantial, they go well. And what we often want to do is make this, oh, that's God's love. My love's just not that. But, but what Paul's doing is he's inviting you. This is the better way. I'm not talking about how God loves you. I'm talking about how God invites you to love. We like to make this a chapter about marriage. Like, oh, you should marry somebody this way. And I'm not saying you should not love your spouse that way, but this is not what Paul's talking about. This is a better way to do community and life with each other. So love always perseveres. Not just with those I like. Not just with those I disagree or I agree with. Love always hopes. Not just with those I have the same hopes with. We can have a different destination in mind, but love compels me to be for you. 
agape love, to sacrifice my preference in favor of you. Love is an always thing. We spent time this weekend talking with the kids, and we had this Q&A session, and the kids were asking really good questions. Half of them were asleep, but it was a good time. And we're, we're having this back and forth. And somebody asked me, they say, uh, what would you, as a follower of Jesus now, say to 16-year-old Lo back in the day? I didn't start following Jesus until I was in college, so what would I say to high school Lo to make him get it? And I told them. I wouldn't say nothing to them. They wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> me knowing me would not listen. Because I was a hard-headed kid. I thought a certain thing about the world, and there was nothing somebody could do in the moment to change me. I wanted to see consistency. No one moment, no one-off word, no profound word would have changed me. Love over an expanse of time. Love that is consistent. Love that shows up not just on Sunday, but a Tuesday. Love that shows up in all the seasons of life when things are going well and things are, are struggling. And always love will change. A relational, consistent, I'm invested in you, I ain't going nowhere kind of love. That will change something. That's what we long to see. I shared this before with the kids. I, I was raised in a single-parent home, just my mom, six sisters. Y'all ain't praying for me. I had a lot of things going on in this family dynamic growing up. And you learn a lot of things in, in, in a, in a single-parent house, especially if you have all women. Like, I, I very early learned the difference between uh, pantyhose and leggings and tights. Uh, often sent to the store to buy stuff from my mom. Uh, I learned that leaving the toilet seat up is cause for a cold war. should not do that. Um, it's a free one, men. Uh, I learned that often the high road is the safest road. Just be wrong. Just don't even engage. Um, and in that, I, I learned that whatever happens in one person, typically, it's the way I thought of the world, if it happens in my house, it must just happen to everybody. And so I remember uh, I learned of this disease that people could contract when they get a little older called PMS. I'm not sure if you heard of it. Um, but it's a thing. And we won't go into all the symptoms, but what I knew growing up was that people get a certain kind of appetite and certain kind of irritability and certain kind of uh, vibe about them at a certain time of the month. And I just thought it was for older people. And I have a sister named Raven who's one year older than me. She goes off of me. She goes ballistic. And I'm like, what's wrong with this chick? And my mom, my mom said, well, it's just her time of the month. And I'm like, oh, no. Kids can get it. Maybe I could get it. <laughs> So I, I, I told the kids, I, I didn't have the healthiest of relationships with school. I was expelled from three different schools, suspended from every school I went to. A lot of trauma I was dealing with, big moments and big emotions happening in my little body that I couldn't always navigate. I struggled a lot. Now, I was going to school, and I was getting in a lot of trouble, and my teacher says, Lo, man, you're, you're tripping, dude. You're not doing homework. You're, you're going crazy in class. You're talking when I'm talking. What's your problem? And I'm like, dude, it might be my time of the month. It might be, <laughs> it might be what's happening here. No, I didn't know that's not something that could happen to me. I didn't know that was something that was like not anatomically a thing that I could, I could experience. Uh, that's what happens when, when, you, when you don't have somebody to model a role in an environment. You lose the role models of an environment. You forget how to flesh out. You don't even know how to flesh out your identity in light of the space you're in. Not having a man to look up to. Not having a dude to be an always, to be a consistent, to model my life after. You're just aimless. And you puzzle piece your masculinity together. And you puzzle piece your identity together, and you try to make sense of your theology, and make sense of your politics, and make sense of your family dynamic, and you're just guessing a lot of the time, trying to figure it all out. I can give you a lot of statistics about what happens when you don't have a father in your life. It's connection to prison. It's connections to a toxic environment in your community. It's connection to homelessness. But I can tell you from my life experience, not having someone who's supposed to be an always, not being an always, it's damaging. What Paul says, I love this language in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. 
He said, if you had 10,000 teachers, 10,000 teachers could not do the job one father could do. He says, you have a bunch of guardians, but you don't have a bunch of parents. What he's saying is that as a community, as a body, we really don't need your gifts. We don't need your expertise. We don't need you to know a lot. We need you to be present and be in always. Be consistent in the lives of those that are around you. If you are choosing to be a father or a mother or a son or a brother or a sister, when you choose that, that shapes way more than your Bible study will. That shapes way more than your sermons will. Shapes way more than any podcast you're listening to. Choosing to lean into love as a consistent always, it changes things. Paul's saying this is the kind of love that should compel your story, should drive you forward, to be a consistent presence in the lives of those who are around you. We need a lot less expertise, a lot more people who are willing to experience with you. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 11, Paul keeps going. He says, love never fails. But where there is prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. There is knowledge, but it'll pass away. Right now, we know in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Paul's reminding us that the law that God gave us was just in part. Not evil, not wrong, not broken. It's it's just not the full picture. Love should compel the story forward. I'm a firm believer in prophecy. I'm a firm believer that God still does miracles. I'm a firm believer that God still shakes things and moves in things. But that's all part. If we just gather for miracle, we're missing the point. If we just gather for prophecy, we're missing the point. If it's not a community that is melded together because of God's love. It's a waste of time. Good things can be in part. Your politics can be in part. They ain't the whole. Your financial security, that's a good thing. It should should be a part. It's not the whole. How y'all agree together, how y'all do life together, how y'all sing, how y'all worship, how y'all potluck, all that should be a part. It can't be the whole. If you try to make what's part the whole, you will miss aesthetic you'll find yourself living in a really weird way. I was on my first service. I used to work out. I used to play football back in the day. I was a swolger up top. Skipped a lot of leg day, you know? It was like an upside-down Dorito. This wasn't really aesthetically the right way. I think in the kingdom of God, we, we, we've lost aesthetic. We've atrophied in some areas. We talk a good game, but we don't neighbor all that well. We give a good game, but we don't live life with those who are broken. Or maybe we bundle together all of our issues and all of our all of our pains, but we don't know how to intercede for those who aren't struggling the same way. We don't have, we've atrophied in some areas. We've lost the aesthetic of the kingdom of God. I need it always present. I need what's whole to be what's whole and what's part to just be what's part. And if we allow this kingdom thing to be just about our preference, it's a country club at best. What Jesus is after is a family, after a community, after a body. He invites us to see clearly this gift. To not see dimly as in a mirror. It's actually how he ends, verse 12 and 13. He says, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. For context, mirrors in their day were very blurry, foggy image. He said, we see currently dimly. It's like we're looking in a mirror. But then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Hear that. I'm going to know God the way God knows me. I'm going to know you the way God knows you. I'm not going to judge you based on the ways in which we disagree. I'm not going to be frustrated about the things you post or what you like. I'm only going to see God in you. 
I'm going to know you like he knows you. I'll be known like he knows me. I'll even know him the way he knows me. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. When we are resurrected, new bodies, shiny, beautiful, sin can't stain us, or we're looking at each other the way God looks at us, all we'll see is faith and hope and love. When I see the kingdom of God, I won't see political affiliation. I won't see denomination. I won't see worship preference. All I'm going to see is faith and hope and love. And I'll see it practically. I'll see the things that I hope for practically, tangibly. I'll see, I'll see the things I have faith in. Jesus will not just be an idea. He will be all my faith will be right there in front of me. I'll behold the lamb in person. I will see love practically. I will see things being laid down, crowns being laid down before his throne. And what Paul is inviting us to is to say, this can be made alive right now in you. That even right now, I can see you, my brother and sister, the throne of God encamped in your heart, and I lay my crown down. My preference is not bigger than my love for you. My heart, can, my heart for myself cannot be bigger than my heart for you because the kingdom of God is in you. That can be made happening right now. And I'll admit to you, it's a strange thing to walk in, but it's a gift to walk in. I shared this before that uh, my son is... Um, He's, he's big-boned. So, um, religiously, I believe he's a Jehovah's thickness. Like, that's just kind of his inclination. I still love him. He's a big guy. And as big as my boy is, like, he, he's, he's like the cuddly kind of baby, so he grips you when you hug him. He's the most fun little juicy thing to hold. I love him. I'm not gassing this up. Like, right now, he's, he's nine months old. He's wearing 24-month-old clothes. He's four pounds lighter than my daughter, who's two years older than him. I'm not making this up. Pray for my back. I got to hold this boy. <laughs> so, so my son's a big dude, right? But he was born during this whole 2020 weirdness, and so all the family hasn't had a chance to hold him and to hang out with him. And so when we get around the family nowadays, there's like the ceremonial passing of babies. You just hand the baby off, and you may not see your kid again until next week. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you hand your kid off to your family, and you know he's good. And there's been several babies that have been born. Uh, my, my cousin has a, a baby named Seven, Seven Love, beautiful little baby girl. So I hand my, my son off to my mom, and then my aunt comes and brings me seven to hold, and I hold her. And if, if you've ever had a moment where you've held something heavy, and then you hold something light, it's like, whoop, I almost, <laughs> I almost threw you. She's a small baby. She's not small. My son's just fat. Like, she's probably a normal-sized human. He's a big dude. And so I'm holding this baby, and it's awkward holding her, you know? Like, I, I wasn't used to it. I wasn't expecting it. Like, if you go and reach for a bottle of water, and you think there's some water in it, and it's empty, it's like, whoa, snap. Like, it, it's, it's not what you expected. Jesus has a really interesting thing that he says in Matthew chapter 11. He's like, hey, I want you guys to give me your burdens if they're heavy, if you're tired of carrying them, if that narrative you've been given, you're struggling under the weight of it. And instead, take my yoke upon you. My burden's easy. It's light. And it's a gift, friend. He's inviting you to a kind of freedom you've never experienced before. It's so much light. It's so much easier. But it does weigh different. And so holding this newfound freedom in Jesus may feel awkward. It may get fleshed out in some weird ways. If you're used to earning things, if you're used to working for it, to, to giving yourself worth and validation, then unmerited grace is going to feel weird to you. If, if you're used to community being homogenous and it has to look like you and act like you and vote like you and think like you, then diverse community is going to seem real strange. If you're used to performing, 
and acting like you got it all together, then when people start being authentic around you, it's going to feel awkward. But that's freedom. That's life in the full. That's life in a story compelled and driven by love. And it may feel weird, but it's the gift of God to you. It's what community ought to look like. I'm going to invite us to a heart posture, something we used to do in student ministry way back in the day. Uh, we'd invite our kids to open their arms as if they're going to receive something. And we have one hand, it's going to be open to receive, and the other hand is trying to figure out what is the thing we're giving up. And so in this moment, I want you to consider what is the narrative you've believed and you've bought into. Try to make sense of it. Is it a narrative of earning? Is it a narrative of homogeny or a narrative of comfort? Is it a narrative of those people will never be my people? Is it a narrative of I've just made too many mistakes? And, and the more and more you try to fill out that narrative and you, you get a good grip of it, I want you to hold it. When you can name it, when you can feel it, when it becomes real to you, you have it in your hand. So you hold it. I know what mine is. Mine's earning. I got to show I'm good enough. I got to act like I have it all figured out. My reward is based upon my performance, not my inheritance. I know how to hold that well. And the invitation is to feel it for real. Let it be real and personal. The same way you feel your fingernails digging into your skin. You feel it. I know what this feels like. And the moment you're ready to, hear the words of Jesus say, lay that down this up. We bow in worship. We unfold our hand. We're ready to receive this new narrative of Jesus, the narrative of his love, the narrative that shapes us to be more and more like him. Abba, we, we come to you with hands in different positions. Some already have it gripped up. We already know what it is. We know of a lie we bought into. We know the narrative of what church is supposed to be. We've, we've been handed it. We don't even know if it's from you, but we, we have it in our hands now. Some of us are still trying to figure it out. Still trying to make sense of the narrative that we, we live from. Others of us are waiting for me to stop talking so we can let it go. And wherever we are in this room, you meet your people. Breath of God, poised and ready to breathe life, to breathe a new story, to breathe the narrative of love all over us. And so as we sit in this heart posture, we do business with you. We say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, breath of God. Come, gospel of love, Jesus. We lay down at your feet, Jesus, our expectations. They may not be met. We lay down the stories of how things ought to be. That may not be how it goes. But we believe you give life in its place. A love that compels in its place. To you, we enter into worship. Our hearts, our songs, our hands open to you. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.